Ok, parfait. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Martin, you know, we live in this world that we believe that there's this lone genius, like the myth of the lone genius. That this person, they're working in their office alone, and they have their best ideas there. But really, don't you think there's something undeniably powerful about being able to talk through the ideas with another person? And I don't know, from my experience, that's what really moves the thinking forward. No, I totally agree, Itai. And of course, it's an experience that we all as scientists go through a lot of the time. We can have ideas all by ourselves, but really to develop them, it's so helpful to talk to people. But it has to be people you trust and people who are right. capable of understanding your ideas, of course. Yeah, trust, I think, is the important word here. Many of us, I think maybe all of us, are constantly feeling like imposters. And when you have someone <laughs> yeah. that you can share your ideas with, even if they're half-baked, it means that you feel comfortable enough to make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. You know, most ideas, I think, while you're trying to find them, are not just half-baked, right? That would be not so bad. Initially, at least for my ideas, they're often generally stupid. That's true. Yeah, most of your ideas are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one idea in a thousand are actually the seed of something good. And I think you'll never know if you don't express all of the stupid ones as well. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't feel comfortable sharing even your worst idea, it's really going to be hard to find your best ideas. Yeah, and I think what I like about talking with some of my favorite collaborators, present company included, is yeah, that I was going to say, that's do, me, right? <laughs> of course, is that you can actually do the yes and principle. Uh, the what? Well, you know, it's, it's like when you're saying something and the person I'm talking with, instead of changing the topic, instead of just shooting it down, instead of saying no but, they actually go along with me and they, they try to build upon it even. Well, actually, that sounds a lot like improvisational theater, doesn't it? Yeah, that's how I like to think about it. The players are working together. Each person is making their own contribution. But the goal is not to stick to any preformed story or script, but you generate an entirely new story. It's, it's like jazz, too, in that sense. The goal oh, you is love not jazz. To stick to, you love jazz. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> right. Like, you don't stick to the same tune of like, do, 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 do. Instead, you just go on top of it. You're like, do, 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 da, ba, da, ba, ba, ba. So that's <laughs> like when you're listening to John Coltrane play My Favorite Things, for example, you hear him explore, you know, and you hear him try to find out what's possible beyond the confines of the tune. Yeah, and you're saying science is just like that, right? So we should call this process improvisational science then. Exactly. To be creative, you have to open up and improvise. Also in science. But, you know, there is a difference between improvisational theater and science, I think. In theater, you know, I could at any point invoke whatever, giraffe swinging across the stage. <laughs> or, you know, my only limit is whatever you or anyone else on the stage said before, and I have to build on that, right? But I can go in whatever direction I want. In science, things have to make sense, right? They need to be consistent with all the knowledge that's already out there. That's true. You know, I think you're right. 
But the thing to remember is that there's a time and place for everything. And I think the improvisational part, it governs what we call night science. When you're trying to make connections, you're trying to form ideas. Here, it's not the time and place yet to provoke a reaction from an audience. It's improvisational in the sense that you don't know where things are going ahead of time. There's no plan. And the consistency, the day science part, that's just a totally different realm of science where the formal scientific method applies. And that comes later. Yeah, but if we're discussing some phenomenon we don't understand, I can't just agree with everything you say, right? I can't say, oh, yes, yes, that's totally stupid. But yes, it would be like evolution with only mutations and no selection. Mm. Well, would it really kill you to agree with me once in a while? <laughs> no, it would not. It would not. <laughs> but getting back to that yes and principle, you know, I would have to say yes. And maybe there's something <laughs> that you didn't really think through here. So, you know, if we're just generating ideas and saying yes to everything like we could in theater, it's like a random mutational process. And mm. we're not distinguishing the good ideas from the not so promising ones. So that would be something like natural selection if we actually made that distinction. Yeah, I mean, I see your point. And I think it's a delicate balance, right? I think the aspect that goes unappreciated is that when you're talking to another person, you should try to make the other person look good instead of just shooting down everything they say. Even if we're just correcting them and stating the truth as we see them, if we're shooting them down, we're not really giving them a chance to develop something that perhaps not now, but eventually could become interesting if given a chance. Oh, you know what? That's just like a jazz story that you once told me. You know the one about <laughs> Miles Davis who played a concert with Herbie Hancock? Yeah, Herbie Hancock, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and then you played the wrong chord and complete harmonic disaster. And Yeah, he Hancock. put his hands up to his ears. It was such yeah. a discordance. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's a cool story because what you told me, Miles Davis paused for a moment and then he played just some new notes that worked perfectly with Hancock's previously wrong chord, which he made right in that way. Yeah, I love that story because it's really the same in improvisational science. If one person says something apparently stupid, It's the job of the other person to help them with it, help them yeah. make it into something yeah. that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. I think we're now converging on something that we both can agree on. Mm. So maybe we don't have to take the yes and rule totally literally, right? Like always saying no, yes. Not. It's just a spirit. It's a frame of mind to be positive about anything the other person says. So instead of rejecting what you say, even if I disagree, I should try to reshape it. I should try to yeah. make it better. I should try to help you to develop it. Yeah, exactly. It's a spirit. It's a frame of mind. It's an attitude. And these days, it's almost like a lost art, sad to say. Yeah, there's so much emphasis now on like efficiency, being fast. Yes. And I just think it's just super important to remember that when you're having these conversations, you need to, to stop all of that. Just like suspend the world for a second. You're not about being efficient. You're not about going according to plan. You need to really believe that some slow thinking, just going around and around, even though it seems inefficient on the same topics, maybe this time you'll uncover a crack in the wall, a glitch in the matrix that you just didn't see before. You know, like running around in circles, that's, of course, in principle, something you can do all by yourself, but probably then you'd really be going in circles. So I think mm. 
the other person really is useful if walking alone on those circles, because you may be much more likely to go in totally unexpected directions. To stick with the analogy about mutation and selection, mm. if you exchange ideas with another person, it's kind of like recombination. Like it's kind of mixing parts of your ideas with the ideas of somebody else. And that's something that an evolution in biology, of course, we know can accelerate evolution massively. So in this case, could accelerate the evolution of new ideas. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And another benefit of talking with another person is that it actually motivates us to spend some time to think deeply. Because often, if you're just sitting alone, there's too much pressure to reply to some emails, do some other kind of small tasks. And it may even feel, paradoxically, too self-indulgent to just sit there and think. You know, or maybe totally. I'm just like not disciplined enough. But you know, <laughs> in the same way that if you schedule a time with a friend to go to the gym, then you're more likely to do it. I think if you're yeah. also scheduling some time to think with another person, then now you've booked this space and it's there for you to actually think. It's like we have a social contract and we feel legitimate yeah. in doing it. Yeah, I like the idea of a social contract. I'm at my most creative, actually, when I sit with one of my PhD students and discuss new approaches or new analyses or something weird that they found and they don't know what to do with. And the reason why I'm creative in that situation is because I know that it's my duty, right? Like, this is my responsibility as their advisor. It's your job. Yeah, it's my job. Like Creativity now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, I tend to think about science more as my hobby than my job, even if it's both. Mm. So it's not just because I'm being paid for doing that. It's because it's what they deserve, right? It's my responsibility. I feel responsible. Yeah. So I feel responsible to be creative. And that means I give myself permission to spend the time being creative. Whereas when I'm alone, like you say, I might just answer some emails that people think are urgent. And I used to call these kinds of meetings brainstorming. I think that's the typical name that everybody gives us. But I think we should call it improvising. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah totally. Because, I mean, brainstorming suggests that we invite a bunch of people and we have this like idea generation session about a particular idea. We write down everything that's related to it and then we choose the best one. And I mean, maybe that's good for some purposes, but it really doesn't capture the way I talk about science with my collaborators in those discussions that we really make progress. No, totally, I agree. Improvising is much closer to what we actually do. I like that term. So from now on, I'll be inviting my students and collaborators for a cup of tea and some improvisation. Well, I'm assuming you're not going to invite them all together all at the same time because no. I know some people think that it's like the more the merrier and they set up these like large meetings. I think that could be done in some settings when it's a group that's already developed some trust, like, you know, in a lab meeting, you know, these are people that weekly and they know each other and they can speak openly and be vulnerable and be creative, but that's like a special group that's worked very hard to develop that trust. And I think ad hoc groups, if you just convene them together for the first time, they're going to behave very differently. And a lot of people are going to feel stifled, for example, that they can't really say their ideas yeah. in this setting. Yeah, there's even research that shows that larger groups, they're really excellent at developing an existing field. If there's papers with many authors, they on average tend to get many citations. But if you're looking for a real novelty, for something that 
disrupts science, something radically new, those things, according to this research, are more likely to come from very small groups, sometimes one person, but often involving two people. So large groups are efficient, but maybe they're not that creative. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you mention an improvisation between you and your student, because I do think improvisational science works best when it's just one other person that you're talking to. And social psychologists, they've already shown for years that people behave very differently depending on the size of the group that they're in. And it's yeah. like this group think mentality, this peer pressure. It's very strong and it totally changes our behavior. So I think if you really want to get good feedback on an idea to really have a meaningful discussion that, that, that improvises new ideas, it's just incredibly useful to talk to just one other person, at, at least just one at a time. <laughs> you know, one can think of so many creative pairs, not just in, in biology where we both work, but in all disciplines. There's Watson and Crick, Len McCartney, Brown Goldstein, Christian Jean-Claude, Kahneman Tversky. Actually, I'm particularly impressed by the creativity of the last pair, how it's described in Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Together with Tversky, they developed a totally new perspective on human decision-making. And they came up with their hypotheses during long walks, just the two of them, where they talked about their personal experiences and decision-making. And I think you need to feel very comfortable with talking yeah. to a person to be open enough for this kind of talking. Yeah, and I think what's funny is if you imagine other people seeing Kahneman and Tversky walk. Yeah, oh my God, right? Like, you shouldn't they be working? <laughs> right, they're just walking and they're not really working. But really, they're doing the toughest part of their work on their walks, right? Because they're thinking about an idea that excites them. And yeah. they can't maybe even say what it is specifically that's exciting about the idea. They don't know enough yet. They're really having all kinds of imagined experiments and all kinds of thinking about what's interesting about it. It's the night science creative part that they're doing on these walks. It's, like, I would say, like a really tough part. And then the executive part of science only comes after that to actually do the more rigorous experiments. And so... To do this creative work, I think there's really no better way than with one other person. Well, I mean, obviously, a lot of creativity has been between two people, but what's wrong with 10 people? If you just want to think something through, why not do it with 10 or 15? I mean, 10 would be great. If you got 10 friends, that's great. But I would do it one after the other. Just have these improvisational conversations, one-on-one, -on -one, and then one-on-one -on -one with another person. Yeah, because if it's all together, then one person could just shoot down an idea and then maybe a bunch of other people would nod because of the group think. And that would be the end of that idea. That's it, an idea lost. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So on the one hand, the social aspects of talking are crucial, but on the other, improvising doesn't really work as well when there are too many people around. Mm. I think there are at least two other aspects why talking boosts our creativity, actually. The first one is that we need help to question our favorite assumptions. Or as Hamid Malik put it, you may have explained your model of some process a hundred times to um, different people. You know, and then suddenly this one person that you're explaining it to asks you about a trivial step, you know, like an obvious step that, you know, of course you do that. Right. But then the person says, yeah, how do you know that that's the way to do it? And you yeah, realize yeah. that you cannot really answer that question. Yeah, how do I know that? 
yeah, maybe there was a wrong assumption that everybody's making, but you never ask why are we actually making that assumption? And you need these discussions with a hundred people one after the other until one of them actually tells you about it. And then you have the tool to actually unlock your mystery. It's so true because just one person saying, how do you know that? Has a way of just like jolting you out of this routine that we tend to get locked into. It's like sometimes we're driving round and round in a rotary and we don't know how to get out. But one other person from their own perspective could easily point out the exit to a new place. And you're like, oh, thank you. You know, actually, I was just confused about your use of the word rotary. I think you mean a roundabout. <laughs> At least that's what we call it in England. Where you live, of course. <laughs> well, where I lived for a fair amount of time, <laughs> where my English was socialized. But you know, when you're going round in that roundabout and somebody points you to an exit, it may not even look like it's a real exit. It could look more like a roadblock, but by finding a way around it, an exit may suddenly emerge. But I think there's another and actually much simpler aspect of why talking helps. If you explain your ideas to someone, it forces you to transform this strange, vague network of thoughts in your brain into a linear logical structure because language is linear. And if it's not it's logical, true. then nobody will be able to follow. Right, like our brain is such a crazy place with so many things happening at the same time and all over the place. And then we're forced to just say our thoughts in this linear structure, one word after the other. So just even without the other person being there, just by virtue of us forcing ourselves to put our idea into this logical framework, we can see all the flaws, all the logic-less parts of the argument. Yeah, I think that's why people sometimes say they need to talk to somebody and use them as a sounding board, right? Which doesn't sound very nice. And I think there's many more ways in which you can interact. But that's one of the things that are important. And of course, in principle, a blackboard or a document on your computer could serve the same purpose of forcing you to put it into a linear structure. But based on how natural selection has wired our brains... That, just you along with the blackboard, doesn't seem to be the optimal setting. You know, maybe it's because we, in our evolutionary past, we frequently encountered other humans, and more often than we encountered blackboards or documents over the last million years. <laughs> That's interesting that you say. Yeah, I was just thinking about blackboards, because maybe for a mathematician, a lot of the thinking does happen in isolation, and the blackboard is like the other person. <laughs> Well, yeah. I actually heard that mathematicians are the most collaborative scientists of all, but mm. I just heard that. I can't say from experience. Yeah, what about the mathematicians? Um, well, you know, there's, famously, there's an elevator at the Isaac Newton Institute for Mathematical Science in Cambridge, where there's a blackboard inside the elevator. And not, you know, so that they can make some notes to themselves on the way to lunch, but for quick discussions of strange new ideas with people they meet <laughs> in the elevator. And then you could see how good the discussion is by how many floors away they were from the floor they wanted to when they realized they missed their spot. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I love this because when you hear a new idea, you tend to have this knee-jerk reaction to think that it's actually very strange and you might have a kind of repulsion to anything that's so different from what you already think. And it's kind of like uh, Plato's analogy of the cave. You know that? Mm -hmm. When the, yeah, yeah. Like the, the person who has like some kind of new idea, a new aspect of reality, they're treated by their peers as an outcast at the beginning. And the reason is that they see things differently. And so they're ridiculed for that. And that's why I think you need to talk about 
strange new ideas in small groups because, again, that eliminates the politics, the peer pressure, the group thing, and all that other nonsense that can serve as a kind of obstacle to developing a new idea. Yeah, and that's when you have a new idea, but it's even worse when you're still on the way to find that new idea. It's crucial in this process, I think, to be able to just let your mind drift in, in an almost random but certainly unpredictable fashion. In a way, maybe night science is like a randomized genetic optimization algorithm. You're trying to find <laughs> the best explanation, but there's no predetermined way that leads you there. Like you make small steps and you have a feeling for whether they might lead in the right direction or not, and then maybe you go on or maybe you go back. So that's night science. But day science, that may be more like a gradient descent. You're on a hill and you just climb in the region where it goes up the most steep. And that will get you to an optimum much more quickly. But if you don't really know what the global optimum is, like what is actually the solution that you're looking for, you may end up in a local optimum in just something that's mm. very nearby rather than finding the global optimum, the real solution that you're looking for. Spoken like a true physicist, Martin. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love it. I love that analogy. <laughs> I mean, I think it's clear that if you want to get moving on your project, you need to find someone you can talk to. It's probably the best advice you could give a starting scientist is make sure you have someone that you can talk to. And yeah, a science buddy, a science buddy. And if that person's not around, there's this great trick that we heard from uh, Tzachi Pilpel. Remember, he told us this on the podcast. He said, yeah, yeah, that was, that was so cool. He said, you could just have an imaginary conversation with that person in your head. Like if you know your friends so well, you, you kind of know what they would say. And maybe it's this kind of trick that allows Tzachi to fool his brain into using it's social interaction, superpowers for working on the idea. Yeah, that is so strange slash amazing. But these invisible friends, they can be very useful, but probably nothing beats a real conversation. That's true. I, I actually assume that Sahi is referring to the periods in between real discussions with people, right? Like when they're just not around. But, um, but mm. of course, Sahi talks a lot to people. After all, the notion of the lone genius is not a complete myth, right? There are these periods between discussions when we actually need to work intensely on something and just really think about it by ourselves. And that typically does happen in isolation. It's just that those are the periods between the improvisational signs that we do with a colleague. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really strange how in our culture of science, we put a lot of emphasis on the former that you discuss, on the lone genius, the person working hard. And then we look at the improvisational discussions that we have with colleagues. We look at those as being kind of nice, but we don't give them the importance that they really serve, which is that they're uh, a crucial part of the scientific method. Like You really need both. Yeah. I think that's, that's the message. You really need both. And because of that, just go out and find yourself a science buddy. <laughs> <laughs>